the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Digital Archives of the Future. It's presented by John Sheridan. It was recorded on Thursday the 1st of March at the National Archives, Q. So, um, whilst the slides are appearing, I can tell you a little bit about me. So, um, I'm the digital director here at the National Archives, um, and I have the most amazing job. So, um, the teams that um, I look after um, are responsible for our digital services. Um, so, our website and discovery, um, the UK government web archive, um, and also things like legislation.gov.uk and the Official Gazette. So, putting um, content onto the web and allowing people to um, engage with our content and engage with our services. And I'm also responsible for our work as a digital archive. And it's that that's going to occupy um, most of what I'm going to be talking to you about this afternoon. Um, now, I should start also by saying that um, I very rarely do public talks. Um, so um, I speak quite often, um, but generally to specialist audiences. Um, so this is a new experience for me. Um, and it's also a talk I've not delivered before. Um, um, indeed, um, I have some colleagues in the room who are kind of curious to see how it might all pan out. Um, so there's an element of jeopardy. Um, but as long as I keep smiling, not sobbing, you can know that all is fine. Um, in digital archives of the future. So, I'm going to explore what the next 40 years looks like for us through six stories of continuity and change. Now, what stays the same over the next 40 years and what's different for the archive? Now, the prompt for this um, is the thinking and the celebration that we've been doing um, off the back of acknowledging that we've been in this building, um, our brutalist masterpiece, um, for 40 years. And um, it was really an opportunity too good for me to miss, to have the chance, as well as us looking back 40 years, to look forwards. Of course, looking into the future is fraught with danger, and um, I have no special insights into what's going to happen in the next 40 years. So there's a fair amount of speculation here. One thing that I am confident of, though, is that there are some core things about the archive that will remain the same. Um, and here's one. So, as the archive of government, we hold lots of information produced by the state. And the state has been on um, an almost thousand year endeavor to make our society and our economy legible to it. Um, the Doomsday Book is a wonderful example of this effort to try and make society and the economy legible to the state because um, the Normans quite rightly wanted to know who has what and who can we tax 
Um, and they compile, essentially, today we call it a data set. Um, they compile a document. Um, now, the archive, against this effort that's been going on for nigh on a thousand years of the state making our economy and society legible to it, offers you two unique opportunities. The first is to look back at the state, to see its decisions, to see what it's doing, um, to understand um, its intent. And it also gives you another opportunity. It gives you the opportunity to see what the state saw through the records that it produced. So to look back through its eyes, to look at the state and to look back. And that essential character of the National Archives as the archive of government will remain the same. What's interesting is what on earth is the state going to be gathering about us all over the next 40 years? And how on earth does the digital archive give you the chance to see the digital state and give you the chance to look through the digital state's eyes. Now that bit is where all the change is, but that essential part of the mission, that stays the same. And we are, we are an institution at an inflection point. Um, and this is partly driven by the shift in format of the record, but not only. It's partly driven by our wider context and the expectations people have of the archive. But we are at a strategic inflection point. Um, and at stake is our relevance as an organisation. We have to be able to transfer and preserve and present the records of a digital government if we are to be a modern and contemporary archive. We have to be relevant to the audiences that we serve. And that means reaching out and engaging people in new ways. It means doing things like this, talking to people about um, some of the more technical aspects of our work, um, openly and transparently. And this quest for relevance <coughs> is very much at the heart of our business strategy, Archives Inspire, which um, if you've not read, I'd commend you to have a look at it. It's um, on our website. And it talks about reaching and engaging new audiences. It talks about changing how people think about archives. Um, and it also talks about the challenge of digital records, um, which it says is our biggest strategic challenge. And I want to give you a sense for why digital is such a big challenge for the archive what that challenge looks like over the next 40 years, what we're doing about it now, and what we're going to need to do about it in the future. So, some peering into the crystal ball, what do the next 40 years have in store for us? Now, it's a story of continuity and change. Actually, not one story, but six. So the first story I'd like to tell you, and this is a story of continuity, is about the children. So we have at the National Archives a wonderful education department and service. And 
we're very keen to bring children into contact with the records that we have. Now, um, uh, Andrew, our head of education, um, tells this brilliantly. So you're getting a kind of um, uh, a second-rate go at this. But here's the thing. Five- and six-year-olds all learn at school about the Great Fire of London. Um, it's in the curriculum. And young minds, they know a lot about it. They know where it started and when. They know how much of the city was burnt. Um, they know the story of Pudding Lane. They know the story of the oven. They know the story of the baker. So we bring um, these five and six-year-olds onto site, and essentially we give them an existential crisis. So, oh, this is so tell me about the Great Fire of London. Okay, so they recount the facts, and it's very interesting. We build the story from these young minds and what they know. And the crisis is then starting to ask them, well, how do you know that? Is that one my teacher told me? Oh, very interesting. So, do you think your teacher was around in the time of the Great Fire of London? Um, do you think anybody was around in, from the time of the Great Fire of London? Well, it's like it's a long time ago. Hmm. And you can see in these young minds the thought dawning. How do we know? How do we know anything? How do any of these people who are telling us all of these things know anything? And at that moment, the moment of crisis and doubt, we introduce them to the record. So this is a record of taxes on hearths, fire hearths. And you can see there Thomas Fariner, who's a baker um, in Pudding Lane, and he has five hearths and one oven. And the children in that moment come to understand this is how we know. We know because of the record or the records that we have that it's not just what we're taught, it's what the evidence can lead us to understand. And that is something, 40 years hence, when those five-year-olds of my age, 45, um, and hopefully still working with and enjoying and experiencing the joy of discovery that is the archive, that will remain the same. And indeed, this joy of discovery is a huge part of what it means to experience the archive. And it's interesting to think about what the joy of discovery will be for records that are in a very different form. Um, and it's also interesting to think about, in the face of rampant technological change, what new discoveries we might be able to unearth from the extraordinary collection that we have. But how do we know the archive providing the answer to that question and the joy of discovery 
there are things that we can be confident will still be the same in 40 years' time. Story number two. And this is looking back um, into our past to think a little bit about our future. And it's the story of the theorists. So what we do as an archive um, is the subject of um, a lot of thought and rigour and practice. And archivists, um, not an archivist by academic training, um, have developed a body of theory and practice for how you go about operating this kind of institution. And the story goes back a long way. Um, I'm going to give you a quick canter through um, some of the big names in archiving. And I apologise in advance that this looks like a succession of um, Latin middle-aged white men, which in a way also tells a story. Um, so the first breakthrough in terms of archival practice was a thing called the Dutch Manual. This is the back end of the 19th century, where someone writes down some of the big ideas in archiving. How do you give context to the record? Um, the arrangement of records is really important, um, as is original order. And we can trace those, in those big ideas back to the Dutch manual. We have, yay, TNA's legend in archival theory um, and practice, Sir Hilary Jenkinson, who way back in 1922 writes a manual, produces a book for how you run an archive, um, that sets the tone for a generation of archivists um, about how you go about the business of running an institution like this. Um, and as I say, this carries weight and store for decades. Um, it really ticks off the Americans. Um, so um, in the 1950s, this guy, Schellenberg, who's the American National Archivist, writes another manual very explicitly to kind of do away with Jenkinson. And it's much to Jenkinson's credit that archival scientists still talk about his work a hundred years later. So Schellenberg has a go-to, and he writes about modern archives, principles and techniques. There's the development and evolution in the thinking of how we run an archive, this question of archival practice. The thing is, it's paper all the way down. It relies on a certain kind of record-keeping tradition that comes from organising information in files and having the files in folders in your office, and after a while, maybe every year, checking what files you need to keep and moving them to the office down the corridor, and after five years, um, to the basement, and after, well, it was 50 years, and then 30, and it's coming down to 20. From the basement to the National Archives here at Kew, paper all the way down, relying on a record-keeping tradition born of some of the physical characteristics of the record. Whilst all of that was happening, other things, really interesting things, were happening in the world. Um, some of them that come to have profound impacts for archives. I'm going to pick one. In 1945, an extraordinary genius called Vannevar Bush writes an article entitled, As We May Think that gets published in the Atlantic magazine. And he imagines a machine called the Memex. Now, it was an impossible dream 
of um, mixing information in a kind of complex, rich information environment um, enabled by um, nascent computing technology. Um, but he sees the potential. And Bush's vision was that we would, we humans would change how we think by being able to work with information in different, more sophisticated ways. And he writes an article, if you Google it, it's an extraordinary thing to this day to read. Now, Bush is significant because of who he influences. He influences people like Ted Nelson, who invents hypertext, and ultimately Tim Berners-Lee. For sure, without the intellectual priming of this piece of work, we probably wouldn't have the World Wide Web today. Now, archives are in the information business, and the shift from records that look like this to noughts and ones is a big deal for us. It's a big deal in terms of how those records can be accessed and used. But it's also a big deal in terms of how we go about preserving them. In fact, the digital records that we look after in the National Archives today are neither in a form that we can permanently preserve. We have to keep making copies to keep the records nor are they in a form that we can easily give to you. We have to have the ability to run code over those noughts and ones so that you can access the information and work with it. So the record isn't in a form we can permanently produce, nor is it in a form that we can um, permanently keep. We have to do work. Now, archival theorists saw the problem a while ago, and this guy, David Bierman, um, he goes for the archiving profession big time. In the late 1980s, he says, your traditional methods for appraisal, description, preservation, and access will fail to meet archival needs. The demands exceed the capacity of the profession and by an order of magnitude. And basically, he says, give up. Right? Radical post-custodialism, right? Record creators keep records. Archives, you're going to have to rethink your whole world. Now, this is a fascinating moment because at the same time, Vannevar Bush's vision reaches something something like reality. This man, Tim Berners-Lee, finally realises a global information infrastructure in the World Wide Web, invented in 1989. And it's a new hope for the archive because suddenly we have an information environment into which we can start to putting we can start putting our collections our descriptions our records and reach new audiences and that's very much what we have tried to do at the national archives with services like discovery now along this story of the development of archival thinking Finally, we get to an amazing woman, Sue McKemish, um, who, in 1996, um, comes up with a thing called the records continuum model. And the big idea here is the recognition that the questions that we ask of records are born of our context. That the record may be fixed, but the context of the record changes with us. Another thing that stays 
the same over time. The record is always in the state of becoming. It's the wording that she uses. So, archival thinking and practice born of paper, the clash to practice of digital, the need in this era for archives and archivists to invent new practices for each generation of technological change. And we're going to be on the hook for inventing new practices, not at the pace of every 30 years, but at the pace of every decade, maybe quicker. New archival practices for preservation, for producing records, for managing preservation risk, for enabling people to work with this material. Story number three, the catalogue's story. So, cataloguing, or indeed context. Context is our superpower. Context is, how do we know what the evidential value is for a record that we're making available? And we've gone about it in a very particular way. We have um, the wonderful descriptive inventory, the catalogue that many of you access and use. And I tend to think of the catalogue um, with some fondness as a steam train. It's kind of taking 19th century technology to the limits in the early part of the 20th century of what you could do. It clearly works. It's glorious to look at. People love them. It's not what you design today. Now, to give you a sense for why, I want to quote um, somebody greatly influenced by Vannevar Bush, Ted Nelson, um, who, in this book, Computer Lib, 1974, comes up with this gem. He says, everything is deeply intertwingled. He coins the term. In an important sense, there are no subjects at all. There is only all knowledge. You can feel Bush's vision. Since the cross-connections amongst the myriad of topics of this world simply cannot be divided up neatly, hierarchical and sequential structures, especially popular since Gutenberg, are forced and artificial. Intertwingularity is not generally acknowledged. People keep pretending they can make things hierarchical, categorizable, and sequential when they can't. Now, in 1974, this looks like he's tilting at windmills. In 2018, when we experience in our day-to-day -day lives the web and the mixture of how our professional lives and information about work gets combined with our personal lives and information about family, um, Everything, indeed, starts to feel much more intertwingled. And this has a really big impact for the archive and for the next 40 years, how the archive goes about the business of providing context. It means getting comfortable with, um, well, frankly, resisting the desire to retrofit order on chaos. Um, it means embracing uncertainty getting comfortable with maybes, um, as well as definite facts. And it's going to be an area where our practice is going to need to evolve with and for each generation of technology that's used for creating records. And that shift is now happening quite quickly inside government, the types of technology that people are using. Um, how do we archive Twitter when permanent secretaries are tweeting? Um, how do we archive Google Docs? 
um, where the information is potentially being captured at the level of the keystroke. The digital archivist story. So for a long time, we've been using computers to simulate things that we do on paper. And the digital archivist is quite happy with this because essentially we can lift and shift our archival practice, long established for dealing with physical records and we can simulate them digitally. And that works quite well for us. It works well up until the point where we stop using computers as paper simulators. At that point, we face disruption. And the choice for the archive and the archivist is either to disrupt our practice or to find ourselves disrupted. Now, we have some language in Archives Inspire about the archives becoming a digital archive by instinct and design. And in terms of our practice, recognising that that means disrupting, changing what we do. And our strategy talks about four types of value that we provide. And these are values that we'll keep providing over the next 40 years, that we'll preserve things. Albeit at the moment, for digital things, that means relentless copying and checking over time. We will contextualise them, although we know that context means going way beyond what we're used to doing with cataloguing. We will present records knowing that we won't just get to be able to publish everything that we are making available on the web. The world isn't that simple. Um, and we have this opportunity to enable use, not just of individual records, but of whole collections. But we know that that gives rise to um, quite deep questions about the ethical use of the large-scale digital archive that we've yet to resolve. It means thinking hard about how we manage risk to records that won't preserve themselves, where we have to make decisions about where we apply our effort and energy to keep the records, and we have to keep making those decisions again and again and again with each generation of technology that becomes available. And we have to think hard about trust. How do we assure the integrity of the record so that people can still use it to answer that question? How do we know when we're in an era of deep fake algorithms where it's cheap and easy to alter digital material in extraordinary ways? So um, this is from um, the beginning of February, um, and the deepfake algorithm allows you to swap the face on a video. So we need some video content with a person and some photographs with a different person. You feed them into a machine learning system, and lo and behold, the face is changed. Um, make no mistake, digital archives are in an arms race around authenticating the integrity of the records that we preserve. We have to be able to demonstrate that the evidence can be trusted in the face of ever more sophisticated technologies for altering or changing digital things. Now, we're interested in doing all sorts of ways in which we can look at new technologies for authenticating the digital record. And we, as a research organisation, are participating in some very interesting research in this regard. 
um, looking at the technology that underpins cryptocurrency and thinking about how can we take that and use it maybe to underscore trust in the digital archive. So looking at things like blockchain. How do we assure the informational content, say in a video, even though we might migrate it from one format to another over time? Um, now these are new archival practices at the cutting edge of how we assure digital records in a world where the technologies that allow us to manufacture stories and fake things are becoming ever more abundant and pervasive. So that brings me to story number five, the machine story. So I've touched on artificial intelligence and we have a vision of artificial intelligence from a time. Um, HAL 9000, the character um, the baddie in Space 2001. And I remember watching Space 2001 as a kid in the um, 1990s. Oh, why don't we have that yet? And yet here we find ourselves with Alexa. It's taken a little longer. I don't think Alexa's done anything yet as bad as HAL 9000. Um, but underneath it is an extraordinary story about the rise and rise and rise of computing power. It's the deep story that underpins why the record is shifting from physical to digital. It's the deep story that is enabling that vision of Vannevar Bush that we might think differently by being able to work with information in a different way, that vision to start to be realized. And I want you to feel the order of magnitude of what's happening. So computers are very simple machines. They just add. They just add numbers together. And the way in which they work is they contain switches. And if you combine the switches in the right way, you can get a thing that will add two numbers. And that's all a computer is at bottom. So the first switches were these things. A valve is, is just a switch, and you would organise valves in groups to add numbers. Very rudimentary computer. Now, obviously, the valves are quite big, and not many of them. Quite expensive to produce as well. So, we get to work on a thing that today we call Moore's Law. It's the it's the exponential evolution in computing power and it starts with valves and step one is to make an electronic valve a transistor and then make them smaller microchips today consist of not just thousands or millions <laughs> billions and trillions of transistors, of switches. And with that, we get this massive advance in computing power. And with that, this massive advance in the capability of the machine. Now, you, I think you've ever asked yourself the question, how many transistors are there in the world? Um, there's an answer from 2015, which is 12,000 quintillion. 
I'm like, I, did, I studied maths at university. I'm like, what the hell is a quintillion? Um, a quintillion is a million raised to the power of five. So that's a million times a million times a million times a million times a million. The transistor is the single most pervasive thing that humans have created. And we are doubling their number around about every 18 months. Um, there's 100 million transistors on a one millimeter by one millimeter square on the processor that you probably have in your phone, on your laptop. Um, this is extraordinary. And it keeps going. Now, it means that our ability to create and gather information is on the same exponential curve. Um, and it doesn't stop. This is a quantum computer. Maybe yet 20 years away, but we're looking at 40 years. For the five-year-olds, when they get to my age, these things may be as pervasive as an iPhone, and they will, too, increase by orders of magnitude of computing power. And this at root bottom is why people talk about a concept, the technological singularity. And I couldn't do justice to looking 40 years ahead without tackling head-on the idea of the technological singularity. So this is the hypothesis that we have a super-intelligent machine that's able to design a better version of itself. And with it, it triggers runaway technological growth, resulting in unfathomable challenges to human civilization. Now, the singularity is the point where machine intelligence overtakes human intelligence. It's the point where maybe we start to merge humans and machines. And maybe, maybe those five-year-olds will augment their intelligence with superhuman intelligence. When you look at a scale of 40 years, these things start to look maybe possible. At the rate of valves to 12,000 quintillion transistors, we have to take the prospect at least seriously. What does this mean for the archive? Well, it means that the archive perhaps is something that we have to learn to share with the machine. Maybe the machine has the ability to process all of the content, a thing that none of us could do, the physical archive, to read it all. Maybe the machine can help ask and help us answer new questions. But the archive will still be about our story, primarily. It's interesting to think about what this relationship between the machine and the human in relation to the archive might be, what that might become. There's some extraordinarily exciting prospects about the stories that the machine and we might together be able to discover from the amazing collection we already have in our hands. 
Which brings me to the last story, the historian's story. We humans will still be in search of an understanding of ourselves and how we got here. We may be on that search, conjoined with the machines that help us, but it will be important to us, and it will be as important to us in 40 years as it is today. Now, history is already in the process of becoming a data science. Historians are able to work with our existing collection and do new types of research to understand shifts and changes in the past in ways that weren't possible before. And there are very interesting projects that the National Archives um, sees or works with, um, for example, in terms of understanding um, immigration into medieval England. Um, research that wasn't possible in an era of physical records has become possible today. And for sure, the technologies that we will have available to us will allow us to see new things from the records that we have, conduct new research, understand new stories. So it gets us to where in 40 years? A story of change, enabled by rampant technology, of the digital archivist in a relentless effort to develop new practice for new forms of record so the evidence can continue to be made available for the future. I have a hunch that there'll still be no long-term storage medium for digital information in 40 years and that the archive will still be having to actively manage risks. There's a strong likelihood that we will also be in this arms race for authenticity. And yet, there's the prospect of machines reading the archive, of new lines of inquiry, of humans and machines coming together, and of fabulous possibilities. But very different, very different. And then there are the things that stay the same. That history will be an inquiry into the past and wanting this effort to want to understand how we got here. It will speak to some of the most basic questions we have. The record will still be in a state of becoming. The questions that we ask of the record will be driven by the context of then, not now. Context will still be our superpower. <laughs> the joy of discovery, of learning new things from the archive, will still be there. And the archive will still be the place where you get to answer the question, how do we know? That's me done. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.